Gospel of John, chapter 1, we just completed going through the first part of John's Gospel, the introduction to what he is going to be writing about in the rest of the Gospel in verses 1 to 18. And we saw that John was very interested from the very beginning to set forth for us who Jesus truly is. He does not want us to simply enter into this uh, knowledge by accident. He wants to declare it to us. that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, and by virtue of being the Son of God, our Maker, and therefore Lord as well. Throughout this introduction, we have gotten hints of a particular figure, John the Baptist, and what his ministry was all about. And now as we come to verses 19 to 34, we will be looking at John the Baptist's ministry in particular. So I want to read John chapter 1 and verses 19 to 34 this morning. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is He of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because He was before me. I myself did not know Him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that He might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on Him. I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Would you pray with me? Father, your servant, John, 
had a very clear understanding of what his life was all about. He knew you had called him to a certain purpose. To point your people to the coming Christ. To reveal to the Israelites their hope and their salvation in the person of Jesus. And because he knew his purpose, he declared with absolute confidence and boldness the gospel concerning Christ. Father, I pray that we also would be a people who know what our purpose is. You have very clearly in Your Word told us why we have been saved. Why You have called us out of the darkness and into the light. Why You have made us Your children and brought us into the body of Christ. It is not simply so that we can enjoy salvation privately. Lord, You have, as You gave John the Baptist a task, You have given us a calling to be a light, not simply to the Israelites, but to the nations. To be a people who go forth and preach the simple Gospel of Christ. To announce that the King of the world has come. And now the world has a great opportunity to submit themselves to the King of Righteousness. Lord, I pray that we would see in John the Baptist ourselves and recognize that we too have been given such a great calling and that we, knowing this calling, would fulfill it and bring glory to You. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Well, I'm sure that most of you, at some point in your life, either out of jest or out of absolute seriousness, have been given the advice, don't believe everything you hear. We live right, in a fallen world, in a corrupt world where men, women, very often, frequently seek their own ends at the expense of others, and they will say, and they will do things in order to achieve those ends, despite what kind of harm it may bring. We see this especially in the current climate we are in with the political debates and advertisements and arguments going forth all over the place, right? We, we can see evidence of this very true advice, you shouldn't believe everything you hear. But even beyond politics, we know that it is in the nature of man to pursue his own good, and often this comes at the expense of others. So the advice, don't believe everything you hear, is not without warrant. It has warrant. But at the same time, Neither should we refuse to believe everything we hear. 
We are to accept certain things. And when we hear certain things, what we should do is exercise good judgment. Very often, the way we exercise good judgment comes instinctually. So with our parents, for example, we don't by default distrust what they say to us when they tell us that they love us. Our default position is to accept that as true. We've lived under their care. They fed us. They clothed us. They've prayed for us. They've rejoiced with us. They've wept with us and for us. So instinctually, we trust them because we have experienced and we have seen their love towards us. But with many others, we don't accept whatever they say with pure instincts. We accept what they say because their reputation makes them credible. We listen to the advice of a financial advisor, for example. Even though we've probably never met this particular financial advisor, we listen to them because they have a credible reputation as being someone who knows how to handle money well. We listen to medical doctors in the same way. We've perhaps never met them in our entire lives, yet they are experienced. They have credibility because they have gone to medical school. They have studied the field of medicine. And many times as well, through the testimony of others, we learn that one doctor is better than another, and so we go to that particular doctor rather than another to receive medical care. Well, the same can be said when it comes to religious and theological matters. There must be credible reasons why a person's teachings on these kind of matters, religious, theological matters, should be accepted. And this is the principle that the Bible gives to us as well. So, for example, elders, pastors within a local church, their words uh, are not simply to be accepted by virtue of them holding a title of pastor and elder. I mean, we can, we can look across the landscape of modern evangelicalism and see that there is a lot of bad stuff being taught from the pulpit, from pastors and elders. What the Bible calls us to do is to evaluate elders and pastors. Primarily in two ways. Is what they are saying in accordance with the Scripture? Right? Does it match up with the Word of God? Is it rightly communicating the truths of God? And second, does their life imitate Christ? Do they have a biblical character about them? We, when we went through the letter of 1 Timothy, we saw certain qualifications that elders and overseers are to have. Chief among them is that they are good family men. They are, they are uh, loving fathers, loving husbands, loving and kind to their children. So Scripture gives us uh, a criteria by which we uh, see and discern the credibility of pastors and elders. The same can be said about prophets under the Old Covenant. A prophet or, or a person claiming to be a prophet and speaking 
for God was not simply to be accepted based upon the fact that they were saying, I am speaking in the name of the God of Israel because of the presence of false prophets. And so they as well, the Old Testament Israelites, were given criteria. Number one was what the prophets were foretelling to happen. Did it come true? Very easy criteria. But the other criteria was, are they speaking in the name of the God of Israel when what they say comes true, or are they speaking in the name of another God? Because there are instances in the Old Testament as well when a false prophet would speak things that are true to the people of Israel, but they were seeking to lead them astray, away from the God of Israel. So there was criteria as well in the Old Testament. The point being that there has to be credible reasons to accept someone's testimony, especially with regard to the truths of God. Well, in the Gospel of John, John wants to present us with a credible testimony about Jesus. All throughout his Gospel, we find the language of bearing witness and testimony. In John chapter 4, verse 39, for example, after Jesus revealed himself as the promised Christ to the Samaritan woman, and she went and she told Her neighbors, John writes that many Samaritans from that town believed in Him because of the woman's testimony. In John chapter 5, verse 36 and 37, Jesus says there, the works that the Father has given Me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about Me that the Father has sent Me. And the Father who sent Me has Himself borne witness about Me. Jesus says of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, John 15, verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. That's what the Spirit, what the ministry of the Spirit is intended to do point the people of God to Christ. John himself, the writer of this Gospel, after describing Jesus' death on the cross and the manner in which it took place, he wants the reader to know that he was there when Jesus died. That he himself was a witness. That he was not simply relaying information that he heard from others. Some of the Gospels do that, right? Luke gives to us an orderly account that he had, that he had put together from various eyewitnesses. But John is saying, my account is distinct. I was there. I saw Jesus with my own eyes crucified. And so he says in John chapter 19, verse 35, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth. Why is he saying this? He says that you may also believe. So clearly, from the Gospel of John, and this is just a small sampling of some of the passages that speak this way, 
clearly from the Gospel of John, John has a desire to bear witness to who Jesus is and to present other credible witnesses in order to reinforce the truth that Jesus is in fact who He was claiming to be. That He is the promised Christ, the anointed King. That He is the Son of God. So in keeping with this desire, in the very beginning of His Gospel, He introduces us to John the Baptist. If there was any human figure in the first century whose testimony would carry substantial weight, John the Baptist was it. He was arguably the most remarkable figure to have lived since Moses. And the Jews, even those who did not like what he was saying, who didn't like what he was preaching about, the Jews widely recognized him as a prophet. We learn from the Gospel of Luke that his birth was the result of a divine miracle. His mother was barren and advanced in years, and his father was a priest in the temple. And you can read in the beginning of Luke's Gospel that it was while John the Baptist's father was in the temple burning incense and worshiping God that an angel of the Lord appeared to him and told him that his old barren wife was going to have a son who was John and who was going to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And John's Baptist, John's father had a hard time believing that because of the state that his wife was in and he was struck blind for not believing what the angel had told him. So his birth was the result of a divine miracle. We are told that he was filled with the Holy Spirit even while he was in his mother's womb. In John chapter 1, verse 6, we find that he was a man sent from God. Jesus said of him in Matthew 11, verse 11, that among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And even from Josephus, who was not a Christian, Josephus was a, Roman, was a, was a Jewish historian in the first century. We find in Josephus' book that he described John the Baptist as a, quote, good man who commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God. And then in his historical account of the history of the Jews in the first century, he tells us of a certain occasion when Herod, the same Herod who eventually beheaded John the Baptist, Herod raised up an army for himself in order to wage war against a certain king of Arabia. And when he went to war against the king of Arabia, his army was decimated. And what Josephus tells us is that when that happened, the Jews collectively looked at that defeat and concluded that his defeat was the result of executing John the Baptist. They believed that his defeat was a judgment against him because he had killed God's prophet. So John the Baptist was widely 
recognized as not only a good man, but a prophet of God. And so his testimony that the Apostle John gives us here is intended to be recognized as one that comes with significant authority and weight. It is as though the Apostle John is placing before us a witness with whom we must deal. Very much like a lawyer would bring in an expert witness to strengthen his case, the Apostle John is calling John the Baptist to the witness stand. And now, we have to decide what we're going to do with his testimony. To receive it as credible is to accept a truth that can no longer allow your life to be the same ever again. If what John the Baptist says about Jesus of Nazareth is true, your life, my life, and the life of everyone else cannot be the same. Because something dramatic has taken place in the world. Something world-changing and life-altering. It is to accept as a fact of reality that the God of the universe has broken into the world in the person of Jesus. It is as though the curtain that separates heaven from earth has been torn in two and now the light of His glory is shining in the world. We can't simply accept this and go about our lives as just some regular, mundane, day-to-day task. Something dramatic has occurred. And that is what it means to accept the testimony of John the Baptist. Your life cannot remain the same. So I want to look at John the Baptist's testimony this morning in two parts. First, I want to look at the source of his authority as a witness to Christ. Why should we receive his testimony as true? And then second, the content of his testimony. So to begin, let us consider the source of his authority. We've already, at this point in the Gospel, been introduced to John the Baptist But now in verse 19, for the very first time, we see him as he interacts with his contemporaries. John was at this occasion in a city called Bethany across the Jordan River. And he was preaching a message of repentance and baptizing those who believed it and began to follow him. He was gaining followers very rapidly. And he was earning a reputation for being a very fiery preacher in the mold of the Old Testament prophets. So naturally, people began to talk to talk about him. They began to ask questions about him. Who exactly is this man? That's what they began to wonder about. We know from the other Gospels that a central part of his message was all about an imminent expectation. He was calling the Jewish people to repent and turn from their sin because very soon the Christ 
whom they were waiting for would come. And He would come not only as a Savior of His people, but He was coming in judgment. He says, He not only baptizes with the Holy Spirit, but He would baptize with fire. Grace, judgment. And so His message, as He preached, was one of both. Hope, expectation, longing for the grace and mercy of God, as well as sober warnings. And as his ministry began to gain traction, people began to speculate. Is he the Christ? Is he the promised Messiah? Is he the prophet? There was a prophet that was prophesied to come in Deuteronomy 19. They wondered, is John the Baptist this prophet? Is he Elijah? Moreover, his preaching was accompanied with a call to be baptized, and baptism was a ritual that not just anyone could do. Right? It's not like your local Baptist minister or, or, or your you know, Baptist congregation minister or, or, or person can just go and baptize someone these days. Not in those days. Not anyone could baptize. Because baptism symbolized the purification of sin. And so this was something, at this time, that a priest had to do. So not only were people wondering who exactly John the Baptist was, but especially the religious elite like the Levites, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, they were all wondering, by what authority are you baptizing? How are you performing this ritual that signifies the cleansing of sin? That's our job. These are questions that we find being asked of John the Baptist in our text this morning. And as he gives his answers, we see that the authority for his ministry comes from two sources. Number one, his authority comes from fulfilling a divine call. A divine call. And number two, his authority came from the object of his message, or what exactly he was preaching. What he was preaching itself, being truth, came with certain authority. The first is that his authority came from fulfilling a divine call. In verses 19 to 23, some of the Jews are asking him to tell him, tell them who he is. Is he the Christ? Is he the prophet? Is he Elijah? And his answer to them is this. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. We just read that text a little bit ago. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 3. That is what John is quoting here, particularly Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And in the chapter, in chapter 40 of Isaiah, the Lord is announcing a message of comfort to His people. He is telling them of a day that will come when they will be delivered from their enemies and most importantly, when their own sin will be pardoned. This is the good news that is coming on the horizon. And shortly after He makes this announcement, He tells them that leading up to that day, a certain figure is going to come. A voice crying out. Some figure in the wilderness, crying out, and that this voice is going to prepare 
the people for the day of the Lord, for His coming and for their salvation. John is saying that He is that voice. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah and Malachi's prophecy. And by making the claim to be that voice, He is claiming that His authority, the authority He has for His ministry, the authority He has to baptize, is coming directly from God. God said He would send a prophet to His people before He Himself came to them, and John the Baptist was that prophet. So His authority first comes from His divine calling, but His authority also comes from the object of His message. John goes on to deny that he was any of the major figures that the Jews thought he was. But because of that denial, they still wanted to know by what authority he was baptizing. And so they asked him. And the answer he gave was an answer that's a little intriguing. He says in verse 26, look at verse 26. They ask him, by what authority are you baptizing? And he says in verse 26, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. At first glance, it doesn't appear as though he's really given them an answer to the question. But what he's doing is answering the question by pointing them beyond himself. In verse 31, he says that his practice of baptizing people served a greater purpose than symbolizing ritual cleansing. He says in verse 31, for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he, the Christ, might be revealed to Israel. John's ministry served the singular purpose of pointing the Israelites to their promised Christ. Not to himself. He was not there to amass a great following for himself. He was not there to draw lots of attention to himself. He was there simply to point forward to another. And so the answer he gives to the Pharisees in response to their question about his authority is to deflect the attention away from himself and towards the one they should really be asking about. He is saying to them, in essence, my ministry has authority by virtue of the simple fact of who it is pointing to. I am not here to make a name for myself, not here to increase my reputation or my followers. I'm simply here to take my finger and point you forward to the Savior. I'm here to glorify the Savior. I'm here to glorify the Son of God. And because my message brings Him glory, it pleases God. And that is the reason it has authority. In other words, by virtue of the truth, of what he is saying. It has authority. I've heard it said before that truth is not something that's negotiable. It has to be dealt with. 
it has to be addressed. And truth, by virtue of being true, has a certain authority over you and over me. You can't deny it. You have to deal with it. And John the Baptist's message proclaiming that one was coming after him who was greater than him was the message that came with authority. Now, friends, what we have to recognize, I think, as we look at John the Baptist and and see how he viewed himself and see how he viewed his ministry is that we have to recognize that this kind of authority that he had is given to us as well. This authority that John the Baptist had to proclaim the gospel of Christ with the authority and the power of God is given to the people of God. Just as John's entire identity was wrapped up in pointing people forward to their coming Savior, so also should our identities be wrapped up in pointing people back to their Savior who died on the cross as well as forward to the Savior who will return again on the clouds of heaven. If we have believed the Gospel, we ourselves have been given new identities and those identities come with a very distinct and clear calling. We cannot any longer look at ourselves simply as so-and-so who was born and raised in Bowling Green, Kentucky or Birmingham, Alabama. You are no longer Paul Johnson. You are no longer Beth Upton. I am no longer simply Dallas Goble. You, as a child of God, born of God, are given a distinct identity. We are His divinely reborn children. We are considered as a church and as the people of God a very distinct nation with its own laws and its own king and its own rulers. We are together part of a priesthood. We are a priesthood of God. We are co-heirs of the kingdom of God, the New Testament tells us. We are servants of Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal to the world through us. If we rightly view ourselves in accordance with how God has made us, we need not be ashamed to make it our life's ambition to announce the good news of Christ to a world that does not know Him. We need not consider that this is just some calling for an evangelist down the road. This is something distinct for every single one of us. We have been given the authority. And we have been given a command to do just that. To announce the Gospel of Christ because the message that we have been given is a message that points the world to their greatest need of a Savior and their greatest hope. So we see in verses 19 to 28, John the Baptist's testimony has authority because of his divine calling as well as his message. And the implication 
because we ourselves have given, been given a very distinct and divine calling and identity is to go therefore and do likewise. And as we've seen this in these first verses, 19 to 28, when we come to verses 29 to 34, we now see the content of John the Baptist's testimony and thus as well the content of what our testimony ought to be in the world. What we find in these verses, 19 to 34, or excuse me, 29 to 34, is that communicating the gospel of Christ does not require a lot of words. To bear witness to Christ does not require you to memorize a distinct gospel presentation or an outline. It doesn't require you to be a sophisticated apologist or scholar able to capably defend and answer all of the most nuanced objections to the Gospel. It doesn't require you to know all of the details of church history and systematic theology. All of these things are helpful, beneficial, even part of Christian discipleship. But bearing witness to the truths of the Gospel does not require them. Let's not forget that to preach the good news means nothing more than to make an announcement. As a messenger would make an announcement. It is as though we occupy an office of messenger. And we are sent forth into the world to simply make an announcement. Christ is risen. Christ reigns. And this is good news. Now, if the world doesn't receive the announcement, that's not on us. That's not because perhaps we weren't persuasive enough. It doesn't fall on us. Our call is very distinct and very simple. Make the announcement. And as the announcement is made, the Spirit of God works Through the announcement. As we simply proclaim Christ is King over the world, the Spirit of God opens hearts and draws people to Himself. We are given a very simple call to simply publish peace and the good news of joy. That is what John the Baptist did. That is all he did. He simply preached And what he preached was a very simple message. Just as the Apostle Paul would later simplify his message by simply saying, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. So also John the Baptist made his aim to simply bear witness to who Jesus was and what He came to do. So the first thing we see him preaching is that Jesus came to take away sin. This was his first announcement. Perhaps not temporally speaking, but the first one here. Look at me, look with me at verse 29. He says there in verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, "Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." Very simple. An announcement. This is the Christ. Behold. Look. See. 
come, go. He's the Lamb. Now when he uses that language, Lamb of God, he is not doing that by accident. He is using language that the Israelites would have understood, understood very clearly. They had a sacrificial system where sacrifices were offered. Lambs, bulls, goats, etc. They had the Passover where they remembered God's great act of salvation to their ancestors and redeeming them from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And they remembered His great deliverance through this Passover and the offering of the Passover lamb. But I think even more distinct, and probably what John the Baptist is alluding to, is the promise of what the coming Christ in the form of a servant would do in Isaiah 53. So in Isaiah 53, verse 7, Isaiah 53, of course, is talking about this coming of a servant, this coming of of one who would speak as God and who would be God. And among the different things that this servant would accomplish, one of the things was this, in verse 7. Isaiah says, He, speaking of the servant, was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. So the servant is pictured as a lamb who is going to his death. He is an afflicted man. And then as Isaiah 53 continues on, what we find is that this lamb, this servant, is going to accomplish a great and unfathomable work on behalf of His people. And the text goes on and it says, By His knowledge shall the righteous one, My servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and He shall bear their iniquities. So they, if they were reading Isaiah rightly, had a hope that their sins would be addressed, would be dealt with, that one would die in their place. Now, there were, of course, certain Jews who didn't recognize the full significance of what that meant, but nevertheless, John the Baptist did. And he announces that Jesus Himself is the servant of Isaiah 53. He is the Lamb of God, and as such, He has a very particular ministry to take away your sin. That, friends, was an announcement of good news. Whether or not it was accepted was irrelevant. It was nevertheless announced as good news and meant to be taken as such. Moreover, he says that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin not only of the Israelites, but of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist is saying that this Christ and His ministry is not just for us, ethnic Jewish people who are descended from Abraham. This good news is stretching beyond the borders of Israel. This good news... And this work of the Messiah to remove the stain and the guilt of sin from people is going forth to the world. Meaning all of the nations, all of the ethnicities, all of the Gentiles, they all are a people who will hear the announcement 
that the Lord God has come into the world and your sin can now be dealt with. All of your pagan sacrifices that have never accomplished anything. All of the gods whom you worshipped, many of whom you did not know and who did nothing for you, they have been shown to be false because Christ has entered into the world and God has proclaimed Him to be His reigning King by raising Him from the dead. Which one of your gods has done that? Announcement made to the world. John goes on and he says, he, he, he says as well uh, that Jesus was not only the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world, but that Jesus is the pre-existent and preeminent God. So read verse 30 where it says, John says, makes the announcement, this is He of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because He was before me. Think about that logic there. The people knew John the Baptist. They knew who his parents were. They knew where he was born. He was not just some figure who came out of nowhere. They knew it. The people also knew Jesus. He's from Nazareth. We know his mother. It's Mary. We know his father. It's Joseph. We know Jesus. And what we also know is that Jesus was born after you, John. What do you mean Jesus came before you? Well, the implication is very clear. John the Baptist means exactly what it looks like he means. He was before me. And as such, he ranks before me. Meaning, before I was born, Jesus was. It's very similar to what Jesus Himself said in John chapter 8 when He was explaining His preeminence to the Jews there. And He says, before Abraham was. Abraham certainly predates John the Baptist. Before Abraham was, I am. John very clearly announced Jesus not only as the one who takes away sin, but the one who is pre-existent and the pre-eminent God Himself. He preached thirdly that Jesus is the one who gives the Spirit. Look at verse 32 and 33. And John bore witness... I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Him. I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The coming of the Spirit Spirit being poured out upon God's people was an expectation that the Israelites had that signified that the day of the Lord had arrived. That the day of His salvation and the day of His judgment had arrived. And the Spirit is said to have rested upon Jesus Himself. So for example, you have Joel, chapter 2, prophesying about this future coming of 
the Spirit. And during this time, it would precede the day of the Lord. And, and Joel says that God would pour out the Spirit on all flesh. And at the end of this particular prophecy, it says, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, people have an anticipation. The Spirit of God is going to be poured out in the day of salvation. And the Spirit is going to be poured out and given by God Himself. And here, John the Baptist is saying that as it was my task to reveal the Christ to Israel, I saw the Spirit of God descend on this particular man. And the Lord said that to whom it descends, this one is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now put two and two together. Joel is saying God will pour out the Spirit. John is saying Jesus gives the Spirit. The claim cannot be any clearer. John the Baptist is saying that Jesus is God Himself now in the flesh. And as such, He has the authority to give the Spirit to whomever He chooses. Finally, John the Baptist preached that Jesus is the Son of God. Read verse 34. He says, I have seen. Seen the Spirit send, rest upon Jesus. I have seen and have borne witness This is the Son of God. I am fulfilling my ministry and announcing this right now. This one is the Son of God. Certainly, we often recognize that the title of being Son of God is connected with Jesus being divine Himself. The Father is Jesus' Father in a very unique way in that He has always been His Father from eternity past. And Jesus has always been His Son from eternity past. And certainly as you read through the rest of John's Gospel, this designation of the Son of God is meant to communicate a very profound truth that Jesus is God in the flesh. But that's not all this title signifies. Jesus being the Son of God, is also a way of saying that Jesus is God's anointed King. That language of being a Son of God, in particular, as it relates to Jesus, has to do with royalty. So if you think back to the Old Testament, God promised David in particular. He made a covenant with David. And he said, you are going to have a son. I'm going to raise up from you an offspring. And he is going to have an eternal kingdom. This is the covenant he makes with David. So it says in 2 Samuel verse 7, verse 12 and 14, I will raise up your offspring after you, David, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. I will be to Him a Father. He shall be to me a Son. The language of being a Son of God is communicating that the promise of David's offspring inheriting an eternal kingdom is found in 
Jesus. By virtue of Jesus being the unique Son of God, John the Baptist is saying that His dominion is the dominion that God promised to His servant David. If you read in the beginning of Romans chapter 1, Paul says very clearly that Jesus, by virtue of His resurrection from the dead, was declared to be the Son of God. Some stumble over that sometimes and say, well, was He not the Son of God before? Well, the issue that Paul is addressing there is that at His resurrection, Jesus was announced to be God's King. John has said, there is one who now reigns over the entire universe who has entered into this world, and it is Jesus of Nazareth. Now, he says all of that in the span of about four verses. No great argument. No great logical or scholarly debate being given. He makes the simple announcement that Jesus is the one who takes away the sin of the world, that Jesus is the Son of God and the reigning King, that Jesus gives the Spirit unmeasured, that Jesus is Himself the preeminent and preexistent God. He says all of this in four verses, and all He is doing is announcing to those who will hear Him of this great truth. That, my friends, is all that we are called to do. You don't have to be any great thinker or any great writer. God has simply called you to do exactly what John the Baptist has done. To make the announcement to the world. You want to know God? You want to have life in His name? You want to have freedom from the guilt of sin? You want to have a a real, promised, secured hope of everlasting life and heaven and bliss and kingdom and dominion? You want to have all of this peace? It's found in Christ. You look to Him. Behold, look to Him. He is the Lamb of God. Friends, we must see ourselves in the very same light that John the Baptist did. He saw that he had a unique and divine calling that dictated the entire life he lived. And we as well, by virtue of being children of God, are given a very distinct calling to announce Jesus wherever we are and to whomever we can. We serve a king. And the king has spoken and given us a command to announce good news. Again, the world does not receive it. It does not receive it. But nevertheless, we are called to announce this to the world in the hopes that God, as He has promised, will open up the hearts of the ungodly as He has done to us. And they will see the light of this King and they will come before Him, bow their knee, and rejoice They are now worshiping the King of Righteousness. Would you pray with me? Father, let us not leave here this day with cold hearts. Let us not leave as though our lives can be lived in any manner that we want them to do. You, as our King, have made a decree.
You have given us a task. The question, Lord, is will we be faithful in this call? Father, help us to see in John the Baptist a man who served You with great joy. Help us to see, Lord, that we have news that is indeed good. And thus we should not shrink back from announcing it to the world. Give us the boldness that comes by the power of the Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please stand.